Hey everybody, welcome back to the Treatment Free Beekeeping Podcast. Today I have a cool guy that um, somebody introduced to me from the Facebook page. His name is Rob Keller. He's based out of Napa, California, and he does beekeeping a lot and teaches at a Montessori school and teaches beekeeping at a Montessori school. Um, a lot of good information. This is going to be a little bit longer podcast than normal. You'll hear why in a little bit. Um, slight warning. Um, this, I, I usually bleep out any sort of, or not bleep, but just kind of cut out any sort of language, but a little bit more of it. Not much. I mean, maybe half a dozen words here and there. It's PG 13. If you're familiar with PG 13, there's nothing explicit or anything. It's just, it's just how Rob talks. Hope you don't mind. I don't mind. It doesn't bother me at all. So, I don't think, I don't even think it's going to be that sensitive for anybody's sensitive ears. So have fun. Listen to this podcast. It's going to be about an hour and a half long. Enjoy. Here is the theme song. Rob, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Why don't you uh, why don't you tell me how you got started in beekeeping and uh, where you're located and what sort of things you're doing there? Hi, Solomon. Thanks for having me. I am a beekeeper in Napa, California. I came to beekeeping in you know a very non traditional way. Most beekeepers that I know either you know have a beekeeper friend or family member or someone who kind of gives them an inway to keeping bees. I came to it while I was working on my Master of Fine Arts at UC Davis. I incorporated bees into my art practice, and at the time I knew very little about bees, if anything. And, um, you know, I think the biggest thing for me was that uh, I just fell in love with these little six-legged insects and kind of, you know dropped out of the art world and kind of picked up on keeping bees. Although it wasn't a huge stretch for me because prior to that, I had spent 30 years of my life working in veterinary medicine. So, um, you know, albeit it was mostly with puppies and kittens, but, uh, you know, I had a, a pretty good understanding of the natural world. My specialty in you know, things I'm mostly interested in in the veterinary world were, was with exotics. So I spent a lot of time working with reptiles and things like that as well. How did you, I'm curious, how did you incorporate bees into your art? So um, I was, at the time, I was, you know, um, focusing on Egyptian funerary rites. And some of the things I was looking at is the idea of, you know, um, Egyptian mummification and the process of that. So by the time I got into UC Davis, I had probably mummified 20 or 30 different animals, which kind of is in line with what I was doing in the veterinary field. Although I was really into the natural world, I, you know, I knew I wasn't going to be a veterinarian. I wasn't interested in being a veterinarian. I had just grown up with it. My mom was in the field. And she was kind of a Dr. Doolittle type. So I always had, you know, 
all kind of very exotic pets, everything from, you know, a capuchin monkey to my big thing was I really enjoyed turtles. So um, I started looking at my life and saying, you know, what's honor and respect for animals? And it kind of worked its way into this project that I had researched everything I could and got very, very interested into, uh, you know, ancient Egypt. And then I started, you know, I, because there weren't many people working in that genre, I started getting a lot of attention for it and was getting shown all over the United States. And one of the problems I was seeing was that I could easily replicate the Egyptian process, albeit it was very different here with our climate in you know, Northern California versus Egypt. But, uh, you know, during the arid times of the year, I could, you know, kind of push forward on that process. But when I would show these animals around the country, I would start seeing problems with, you know, um, moisture problems. So I was thinking, what could I do in a dignified way to seal these objects? And I thought, wow, how about this? I'll put them in a beehive and the bees will surround them with wax and that'll seal them for me. And that just spun off into what is now, a, I think I've been at it 22 years or something. Um, um, you know, this incredible fascination with the, you know, European honeybee. Okay. So let me get this right. <laughs> This is probably the most <laughs> fantastical thing I've ever heard on this podcast. You, <laughs> excuse me, you started out with a, getting a master's of fine arts and you moved on to m mummifying animals in the traditional Egyptian practice and then using bees to seal up the mummies to keep them from essentially rotting as you're traveling them around the country. We call that, you know, you would, we would get them desiccated and then they would never really rot. It's just, they would take on moisture in a way that they don't hear, you know? And it wasn't like they would get gross or anything like that because they were fully desiccated. It was just a problem of, kind of sealing their wrappings. Mm. But yeah, you got it. And um, <laughs> I am, I'm uh, not laughing you at you. I'm it, just, man. this is amazing. This is so interesting. My, my wife and I are both well, uh, interested in, in Egyptology and things just as a, just as a passing interest, but this is amazing. Wow. I'm going to ring your bell, man. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, that's how I got into it. And uh, the, I got, my um, first colony of bees, probably, you know, my first year at UC Davis. And um, I, again, I didn't know very much about them, but the wonderful thing is uh, that Davis is the mecca for beekeeping, right? You have the laid law, you know, bee center. And um, I became pretty quick friends with Eric Moosen. He's amazing, and he really kind of uh, got me started on this path of, you know, beekeeping. In the beginning, I was very much like everyone else. You know, you don't know much about it, and you talk to, you know, 
two different beekeepers and get five different answers. So I started off doing the same trip everyone else did, man. I was on that Apostan strips, I think. I was on the, the strip trip and, um, pretty quickly I realized like, wait a minute, this doesn't make much sense to me. Why are we medicating these, you know, little insects? And is there a better way to be looking at it? Especially in this idea that we could probably do it without, you know, medicating them. So fairly quickly within the first few years of me working bees, I jumped off the treadmill and started kind of exploring other ways that I could do this without, um, you know, having chemical intervention. What, what year did you start? I think that was probably, I got my first colony of bees in 98, 99, somewhere in there. And again, beekeeping isn't what it, you know, what it's grown to today. There were very few clubs around. Um, I was very lucky. I met a guy from um, Mount Diablo, which is probably 30 miles from here, and he kind of took me under his wing and showed me the ins and outs of beekeeping and, you know, mentored me along the way, gave me my first colony of bees. And I think um, maybe at that point I can kind of see me making my biggest mistake in beekeeping was you know, I went to my neighbors and told them, I'm getting a colony of bees, you know, I just want you guys to know. And uh, that was a huge mistake because at the time, bees weren't legal here in Napa. And, it, you know, and I didn't know enough about bees and understand the any of that stuff that we know now, you know, flight path, how important that is. And, you know, how do you make these bees, you know, so they're not a nuisance to your neighbors. So... You know, it kind of drove a wedge between my neighbors and myself. But uh, I kind of look back on those times and say, where, you know, every year you learn something. And that was probably my, the earliest thing I learned right out of the gate was, and especially in the urban landscape, I don't know that you have to tell everybody about your bees, right? <laughs> especially if they're not legal in your city limits or wherever you're living. Yeah, but that was nice for me because it kind of kicked me off and it threw me into more of a political arena that, you know, over the next five to seven years of educating our um, city council and all the people, you know, the bureaucracy involved with revisiting um, legislation. And we were able to get bees legalized in the city limits of Napa. So now anyone can keep bees in Napa. Very nice. Yeah. What was my next question? Oh, um, so we've all heard that honey has been found in Egyptian tombs. Is that true? Yeah, right. What don't they talk about? You know, we say honey lasts forever, forever, ever. Yeah, King Tut's tomb. There's stories of, you know, I've heard read stories of tomb robbers who broke into other tombs and found honey and other surprises inside the vessels of honey. Um, yeah, I, I found that that was really interesting to me, but what I found more interesting was the, you know, the great sun god Ra and how the ancient Egyptians worshipped the sun 
And I kind of saw this parallel with bees in that, you know, how they also, the sun is so important to them, you know, in their communication and everything they do is really based on this big glowing orb in the sky. That was more of the parallel that I found much more fascinating than the honey, although it is kind of nice to be able to tell people, you know, yeah, this is the one product that will last forever as long as you store it properly. Cool. Um, We get actually in the the treatment-free community, we get a lot of, it seems like we get a lot of pharmacists and doctors and people in the medical profession, we get and we get a number of veterinarians also, because people they start to realize over time seeing it. You know, I the reason why I haven't had posted a podcast in about the last month is because I had pneumonia. So I went to the doctor and I got um, antibiotics and it cleared up my pneumonia. So. But most of us don't spend a whole lot of time on antibiotics, which is good because that can develop resistance. But a lot of times people who are around that sort of stuff, like pharmacists dealing with that kind of drug every day, they see much more of the the downside and the um, the pitfalls of using especially antibiotics and sometimes other treatments as well. So I was wondering if you had any experience to relate from your veterinary background, did that kind of inform your move toward treatment-free beekeeping? You know, I think overall I would look at it, and I don't have any specifics because I think that, um, you know, there's something to be said about Western medicine. But um, and there was just an overall feeling to me that this isn't right. I mean, didn't make sense. You know, there was, you know, I, I, I get the idea that if we over medicate, things are going to become resistance. And we've seen that, you know, we, all the big research is showing that a lot of these miticides are becoming, you know, less efficient because the bees are, the mites are building a resistance. We're building super mites. So I just guess I saw all that picture. And it just felt kind of wrong to me to be medicating bees. And at the time, I wasn't really thinking that um, I would have, you know, such an impact and my local area on it and saying, like, really drawing a line in the sand saying, like, hey, we need to look at this. There's a much bigger picture than just um, the bees that are in your hive, right? It didn't start off that way, me saying, okay, I'm going to be breeding the best resistant stock I can find and disseminating that those genetics up and down the Napa Valley. I didn't have anything like that. It wasn't so profound to me. It just felt, you know, it felt wrong to be putting things inside of a hive to kill the mites. And I didn't know what that meant at the time, but now it's very clear to me the... um you know, the ramifications of me, if I'm going to say, hey, I'm going to medicate my bees, what does that mean to a bigger community? What does that mean to a three-mile radius around me? You know, what does that mean to the species in general? So, no, I didn't have any, there was no big, 
you know, light that went on or some, you know, something that changed for me. It just felt kind of weird inside. So I quit. And plus I was horrible at that stuff, you know, following the, um, following the protocol of using those Apistan strips back in the day when I was a little baby beekeeper and I didn't keep copious notes on every hive I have, um, you know, I would leave Apistan strips in all winter long and find them in the next spring and say, oh, shit, I forgot about those, right? So uh, that stuff didn't, just didn't make sense to me. So it felt good to get rid of that stuff. I'm, I'm kind of the way about foundation as well now. I don't really feel like we should be putting petroleum-based products in the hive. You know, I, th- that feels weird to me, other than the fact that, you know, I, um, you know, I look very closely at... Um, that imprinted cell that's on that plastic foundation, I think that that's also something that we need to look at very closely. Not only for mite control, but how about just letting the bees build their own wax? Let the bees build what cell size is natural to them. Don't be telling them what to build. You know, I think um, if you're foundationless and you really watch that closely and watch how the bees build, you know, their, uh, you know, their default is drone cell. So if they don't know what to build, they build drone cell because they know later on they're going to use it in different capacity. So it's so beautiful to watch a, a bees build out foundationless comb and how they drift in and out of worker size cell into drone cell. So I guess overall, I started looking at how you know how our what are what are our inputs into the hive. And I get it, man. That it's not like um, you know they're living in a tree. Although I do keep a lot of log hives as well. I'm fascinated by those. But the Langstroth isn't a log hive. But I think we can mimic some of those things with the use of follower boards and vertical management for sure. I think bees want to be managed in the vertical configuration rather than some of these top bar hives. I, I don't have any top bar hives at all because. I don't think bees want to be managed, at least in my region. You know, it's a Kenyan top bar hive because it works for those people in Kenya. But I think we should, in our region, we should be managing our bees vertically because I watch that brood go up and down throughout the season, according to how the bees are storing their provisions and all sorts of things like that. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. You, um, I hadn't heard on any of your podcasts are you into vertical management as well i tend to find that that works the best for me i have Uh i've often thought of exploring horizontal hives i'd like to start some top bar hives and some lanes lanes hives just so Uh i can have that experience because i think those especially are good for people who are trying to get into beekeeping without spending a lot of money which which there are a number of people um, but any yeah. any hive design is going to have drawbacks and advantages. You know, I tell people, especially the Langstroth hive, the Langstroth hive is meant for. Well, you, you in Northern California, there, it's literally meant for your climate. It's what it's designed for. It's designed for migratory beekeeping uh, through the south, southeast, oh. and southwest. It's not meant for. Um, the cold north, you know, with thin walls and, and lightweight construction. Um, so, 
you know, I recommend for people further north, you look for some, either build your own hive that's thicker wood or use one of like the, uh, uh, you know, here's artificial materials, but polystyrene hives are very, um, very insulating. So that would be better for temperature concerns. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, I think vertical, I think the the bees can deal with what they have, but I think they more naturally work into a vertical uh, configuration simply because most of the time they live in trees and that's what trees do generally. So, um, yeah, I can, I can totally see that. How about when you, um, look at when bees move into a structure, right? Most of the time, not all the time, sometimes they move into the roof joists or wherever they can move that's more of a horizontal configuration. But um, I find that most of the time, and the colonies that do the best are the ones that move into a situation that allows them to, you know, in between the interior and exterior wall, between the stud base. Yeah. Those are, I mean, um, and... I look very closely at that and we make, you know, like I said, we're taking, um, a lot of information, recording as much data as we can. How do those colonies do that we take out of the roof joist versus the ones that we take out of the wall? Which ones end up being our, um, in our breeder stock, right? What have you found? How come they're in the breeder stock? Where did they originally come from? You know, what was the orientation of that hive? What are the, um, you know, what are the, you know, what, how is that hive set up that they chose, you know? Do you have any general so, results from those, from that data? No, um, we just started getting on to moving into that direction. I think a lot of things have really changed for me because in the early days, I was just doing it on my own. And then you know, it got a little bit bigger than me. So I started bringing people on to help me with this. And um, now I have an amazing group of people working with me that are just so amazing. I have probably some of the best beekeepers in Northern California working with me. And um, it's allowed us, A, to work bees all day, then come home and sit around and have a wonderful meal. And, you know, of course, we're drinking beer and wine because that's what we do here in Napa. But we talk Naturally. all night about what we, well, no doubt. So <laughs> that's what, that's what we, um, we do. We talk about bees and what did we see all day and, you know, have really, um, good conversations about, you know, what were the, um, what, what can we change in our management? You know, what, what hives are doing great and all of us know each of the hives fairly intimately because again we you know um we spend a lot of time making notes and looking at those notes i think uh, some of the the biggest advice i can give to new beekeepers is to set up some way that they can kind of record data and look at some of the manipulations they've made but look back on them what they did six months ago what did that effect did that have on their hive today you know and being able to slow down because man, when you're doing it on your own, you're moving at a fast clip. So it it was, it's so nice for me to have these, you know, young, thoughtful beekeepers working with me, 
And I think we're making some real headway, you know, especially in um, locally adapted stock. So, you know, I talked a little bit about being foundationless, which is a small part of it, but we're really, really focused on, you know, feeling like, you know, everyone's looking for that silver bullet to deal with this varroa mite. And I find that for us, it's, you know, it's starting to shape out like, you know, but that silver bullets in your own backyard, man. Find those bees that you're, you've talked about all the time, collecting swarms. And, you know, I really believe in the way that you're doing it. You know, you, I, I know Kephas has his live in let die bees. I mean, I feel like that's kind of our premise here. In the early days, we were, you know, we had these crazy paradigms. We were filling out forms and saying, you know, oh, how are they at, brood rearing how are they at pollen hoarding you know what's their temperament are they you know how is their honey production and we would add up a bunch of numbers and you know come out with the final figure and i think that equal to 11 we bred off them now we're like uh -uh. <laughs> we breed off them for one reason one reason only man do they live or do they die and what i found is you know sad I don't want to be discouraging about it, but I think those numbers are right that I heard on one of your podcasts. About one in 10 colonies turns out to be your diamond in the rough. But, you know, breed off that colony. Every spring, breed off that colony. And soon you'll see if, you know, for me, I have multiple apiaries. I start seeing these um, trends of these bees that are getting out there. And, you know, we have... We name them. I know you said you don't like naming bees, but for <laughs> us, we need to name them so that we can identify them. It's not like we're naming them so we can go pet them and get all lovey-dovey. Man, I'm down with you on that. I have a kitten for that. I have a dog for that. If I want to pet an animal, I don't even pet my turtles, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that way at all. Man. I'm cut and dry like you. But we name them so that, A, we can talk to people in the apiary because we're working with a lot of farmers and landowners and things like that we can say which hive are we talking about and a lot of the a lot of the people i manage bees for are in restaurants so we name them after the people in the restaurant right the owners the chefs things like that but uh the, it's nice to be able to um discuss with people what who we're dealing with and how you know those bees get out there we have a number of royce two bees Royce too. What's that mean? Well, my buddy Royce called me up and said, hey, man, I got a swarm of bees in my tree. He called me up numerous times. This was the second swarm that we caught from him. And those bees did fantastic. And we've been breeding off them for, you know, at least half a decade now. We have Royce two bees all up and down Napa Valley. And it seems to be working for us at this point. So I don't bring any bees into Napa Valley. I don't take any bees out. I'm, I stay out of the way of natural selection the best I can. The, I do feed a little bit if I need to, but I'm, you know, I heard you were talking about mixing up five gallon buckets of feed. I don't even do that, man. I mix things up in a quart. If I need to, I'll hit the bees with a couple quick blasts of it in a little pint jar. You know, I, I think you start feeding bees this time of year. You're not really. You can do them a service if you're careful about it, but if you don't, you just start throwing feed at them. You're you're going to get a queen that's egg bound, and it's not really going to do you much good in our area, right? Mm -hmm. 
So, um, yeah, I, I think that we should be looking at beekeeping a little differently. <laughs> Stay out of the way of natural selection and, you know, do the best you can to there's certain things in our management that we really need to look at and say, okay, record keeping is huge. Expanding and contracting that hive if they need it is huge. Expanding and contracting the entrance is huge. Those are probably the three biggest things I think we can do as beekeepers other than stay on top of them, right? Mm-hmm. I think part of the reason why I kind of get away from naming is I'm really a, a visual spatial thinker. And uh-huh. for me, keeping track of a name of something is is nigh on impossible. It's not just the anthropomorphism, right. though there is that too. But like when I think of what hive is my best hive, I can tell you like it's the fourth hive from the end. Like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because that's the way that I think, you know, I think visually. Uh-huh. Um, go ahead. And that's all right if you're only dealing with you. Right. Yeah. I think I could kind of manage that too. But if you're working with multiple people like you are. Yeah. Five people and we're all sitting around the table at the end of the night. And, you know, and then that other thing is, man, then wine starts to get involved. So you start thinking, wait a minute, that's the second or the third (laughs) time from the left. Now we just say, Hey man, that's Chris. We all know that that's Chris. And, you know, we're either loving Chris or we're bitching about him. Right. (laughs) That's the way it goes. Like, what can we do to make Chris better? <laughs> like, what's going on with Chris? That kind of thing. So, yeah, I, um, overall, I think um, we're getting to a better place. But what I find is, Solomon, the more I'm out there, and, you know, this next weekend coming up, I'm going to a conference over in Alameda, with a bunch of guys I never heard of. I did kind of Google them and see who they were, but, and Michael Bush, of course. Mm-hmm. But I look at these guys and I think everyone really has, um, amazing things they're doing. And I'm not bugging, man. I'm just saying that, like, I don't find many people that are looking at, um, looking at the whole package, right? Like you have Kurt Webster out there in Vermont and what he's doing is, epic man he's absolutely epic in what he's doing but um i think he's bringing in a bunch of those russian bees right hey evelyn how are you and i think that we need to look at the whole picture and say okay treatment free is part of it there's amazing beekeepers out there who are treatment free but then they're not you know they're not looking at locally adapted stock or then you have people that are really focused on locally adapted stock and they're not looking at the treatment free side. They're treating their bees. I think you need to have both sides of that coin covered. And, you know, part of it is also accepting the loss because, you know, I'm, I'm not going to post up here in front saying I'm not losing bees, man. I'm losing bees and, you know, I lose I'm not hives. losing them exponentially. Yeah, I lose times? hives, but it's part of the process. You know, people ask me what my my yearly loss rate is, and I'm like, well, five to twenty percent. It, it's normal. That's right. what it is. Well, also, um, Solomon, I'm seeing something here very different over the last two years. A, being committed to this treatment free thing, I'm not losing my breeder stock mm. the way I was. You know, I'm not losing bees because I'm not losing my breeder stock. Mm-hmm. But this year, for some reason, man, I'm losing as many bees to queenlessness 
as I am to varroa-associated viruses. Mm. It's crazy. I'm at about 50-50 now. It's nuts. You'll go into a hive. There'll be no brood. They may have tried some cool-together-a-little-dinky-queen, but, um, you know, I'm losing queens, and I think it's due to the fungicide. In, in that case, we're screwed. I'm not going to, you know, it took me years to get these guys to lay down a cover crop for me because every inch of this valley has been dedicated to grapes, which I'm loving, man. I'm not bugging on that either, <laughs> but it's a desert out there for a bee, yeah. right? It took us years to have them lay down cover crop. Hey, man, plant something in your hedgerow. And about those roses on the end cap, they are tired, man. That's done. You know, plant something on that end cap that's going to get me some forage for these bees. Mm -hmm. And making some headway in who I am and is getting us some groundwork done. But, man, you tell them to kick the fungicides, that's not going to happen. Well, let me just go ahead and say that the first part of this podcast was recorded two days ago, and we only had enough time to record for about half an hour, so here we are back two days later, finishing up more of the interview. So, welcome back, Rob. Thank you. Thanks for having me for the second time. All right. Yeah. Uh, where were we? I got some notes here. Um, yeah, I was going to say, I hope you got notes. I forget where we were. <laughs> it's okay. Um, so what? what is your weather going on right now? What are you doing uh, for fall preparations? Mostly what I'm doing at the moment is probably the last, um, well, inspection that could turn into a deep inspection depending on what we see. So... The protocol for us at this time of year is to pull the tray, see what our mite loads look like, and, you know, also pop the lid and see if all those bees are up on top, on the top bars. Um, if they are, and it looks like the colony's populous, obviously looking at the front as well for external activity and making sure they're bringing in pollen. We make notes of all these things. I don't get overly excited about mite loads if I have a very populous colony, especially at this time of year. On the other hand, if I pull the tray and see a pretty heavy mite load and I pop the lid and I don't see many bees up on the top bar, it starts to alarm me. And at that point, we'll decide whether we're going to go a little deeper. Um, so you're what most, I'm hearing you saying is you're looking for population of the colony looking for mite drop on the bottom uh-huh uh, although they're all um for treatment free beekeepers at least in this area um they're all going to be a little bit higher than normal anyway because we're at that time of year right where she's slowing down that real estate becomes precious and you start seeing a lot more mite drop you know those phoretic mites die off and um you know, I just see much higher mite loads. Everyone does. That's a known fact. I the see. Thing that we're what we're really looking at this year, and I don't know if you guys are seeing it there, you guys noticing it, but when we're, um, we have certain colonies that you pull that tray out, sure, you're going to have a pretty high mite load, but you have a bunch of live mites on the tray, you know, that, that's 
to me, indicates something very different than if you have a bunch of dead mites on the tray. Dead mm-hmm. mites that are all of the same age, you know, you can roughly get an idea of how old they are and their sex by their color. So if I see a tray that has a bunch of mites on it that are um, alive and obviously moving, uh, I start to really, we're making a pretty big red star on those and saying, okay, let's see what those things look like when we come out in the spring. They may end up being getting thrown quick, quickly into our breeder stock, fast track them. So what you're seeing with the live mites is, is you're interpreting that as they're actively shedding the mites. Or grooming them, you know? I think, right. You know, the, you've talked about it in a number of your podcasts about um, some of the mechanisms that you like to see in mites, um, in the bees, as far as dealing with varroa loads. You know, we, mm-hmm. there are ones that we look at very closely, them untapping a, um, the cell and recognizing that there's a varroa mite in there, a varroa family, untapping them and then either dragging them out or just liberating that larva, kind of knocking down the population that way. Right. I guess there are, I don't know about that ankle biter thing, you know, um, I haven't seen much indication of that. We do throw the mites on microscope and look at them. Um, and also grooming behavior. So what are all those mites doing down at the bottom of the hive, especially all ages? So in, in my mind, I just want to kind of, it feels like every year I pick one or two things that I can really focus on, you know, and besides what plants we're going to do for the season. But, you know, I tend to, focus on one or two things that's going to improve my beekeeping and, you know, make it a lot easier for the bees. So we're working with them, not against them. Right. So, so we're, that's kind of our protocol at the moment. Um, this year for us, that varroa might run fast and furious roughly every month, three weeks to a month where it, at least looking at a hive, we're not diving in them and tearing them apart this month. But certainly got our eyes on them and reading our trays and popping lids, all those things. And um, some colonies were just busting three weeks a month ago, and I went in them this earlier this week. And man, they're CTD, we call it circling the drain. Mm-hmm. So they're severely parasitized, and you know, um, we try and catch them before they abscond because. Um, you know, I've, when you were talking to John Keepos, that mite bomb situation, I think that's very real. I've seen it in my own apiary, so even though I am treatment free, I can see the other side of that coin, right? And I think, um, you know, those are things that we need to look at as treatment free beekeepers. So, one of the main thing that I'm seeing is this bro mite came on fast and furious this year. Within three weeks, it would drop a colony where sometimes you would see um, colonies kind of linger, and then you knew that they probably weren't going to make it through to spring. But this year, man, it came fast. I'm not sure what that was all about. So you don't have an explanation as to why you think that's happening? Why it's happening quickly this year? I'm not sure, really. I mean, we got so much on our plate. You know, we had a huge wildfire here. Did you hear about that? Yes, I did. Like, Yeah, so we had this crazy wildfire here that, really was, uh, you know, that put a whole new dynamic to the beekeeping 
And, you know, a lot of beekeepers here lost all their hives. I was very fortunate because for one reason or another in the, um, the hive burn zone, I, I lost very few bees. And like some of the, well, you know, some of the, um, apiaries, you could see the fire burnt right up to the hive. It even bubbled the paint and the bees were fine. You know, I thought I had seen the worst of it from what I was seeing as far as other beekeepers imagery on Instagram and things like that. And then I went to uh, help a guy out in one of the really severely burnout zones last night and I was just blown away, Solomon, blown away. Colonies that had, um, he did everything. He had these pretty cool PVC pipe stands and all of those melted and the hives fell down in front and they got severely scorched. Like really, um, you know, I'll send you some pictures so you can see them, but the wood was burnt and the bees were still surviving. I was, I was like, Dumbfounded. I'm like, this is crazy. Albeit they're only on two or three frames of, um, two or three frames, but, you know, the, the bees had survived. There's queens in there. She's laying really, uh, I think with these fire shoes, she'll come out and be laying a little slow, but yeah, it's nuts. So that almost, that's the other, that almost makes a little bit of sense to me because, you know, beehive, bees natural and, uh, natural habitat is in trees and, and forest fires. Mm-hmm. Natural forest fires are a regular normal occurrence, especially uh-huh. here in the Northwest. We, I mean, we're kind of famous for having a lot of forest fires and we did have a lot of forest fires this year, but in uh-huh. natural old growth forests, the fires burn at low intensity, mostly at ground level, only consuming grass, brush and uh, dead fallen trees so it seems to me that being able to survive that sort of thing would be would be a natural trait for bees to have and if you look at things like um when um if you look at japan with the with the vespa wasp the bees defense against the vespa wasp is to increase the temperature of the hive up to like a hundred and I forget exactly, but like 117 degrees, whereas the wasp can only survive 116 degrees. So, and I've heard, I've heard stories from guys like Michael Bush when they have had super high, um, heat waves, heat waves so high, in fact, that honey is dripping out of the hives because the wax melts and it can't hold it anymore. And the bees are still able to survive that. They, they, I mean, it's not good for them, but they're still able to survive high temperatures. Right. I think, um, I agree with you on all those, but when I saw these particular colonies, I thought for sure, like the, the, the comb was all still intact. I did have, um, we did have a heat wave too. I had some experience, some of that, you know, collapsing of comb earlier this year. Um, but, and even that, you know, I thought that it was a big deal. The one, my own, at my own personal apiary where the fire got so close. But for these, I was just like, wow. I, I had, what I was, um, what I was seeing in my own apiary was nothing compared to this particular, you know, this setup. So yeah, man, we're doing a lot of that. We're doing what we're calling fire checks, just going out there because there was a heavy smoke in the air. 
you couldn't, you, the visibility was probably a good 50 or 100 feet ahead of you for a number of days. Wow, so yeah. we were, you know, um, I wanted to make sure that the wasn't any problems with the bees. I'm sure they were very confused, but overall, I, um, I didn't see a whole lot of short-term problems. I don't know what the long-term is going to look like as far as, you know, will these queens continue to, they, you know, we need still need some winter bees, so hopefully they'll get up and start laying a yeah. little bit more. And we, we didn't so get snow. The, Go ahead. No, you didn't get smoke on yours that bad? We didn't get smoke quite that bad. It, our, our visibility got down to maybe quarter of a mile, half a mile. Uh, it got to the point at certain times where you literally couldn't see the sun. You knew where it was supposed to be, yeah. but it wasn't there. Uh, but not quite uh-huh. down as low as a hundred feet. Oh, it got crazy here. Everyone's shit's burning up, man. <laughs> like that fire was furious. It, it was really interesting because it was, um, very indiscriminate, you know? It burned with a fury, like nobody's business. And when I say that, you would see where, you know, friends of mine's houses were used to be there and all this there now is a chimney. Nothing else. It burnt melted metal, everything. So a lot of that stuff was in the air, right? All those pollutants and you're not just talking one or two houses. And then, you know, in some places, five, six, seven houses and it um it was fairly significant. That's I think a lot of those pollutants in the air. And then, you, you know, you would leave and go, um, try and go down to the Bay Area. Napa's about 45 minutes or an hour from San Francisco. And it was even bad there. Like, mm-hmm. Everyone had to wear respiratory masks. I was down there uh, Labor Day weekend to see a baseball game. And oh. it was smoky. It wasn't that bad, but it was definitely smoky down there, even though the fires were up here. It's kind of interesting. Uh-huh. Well, wait a minute. Where are you from, Solomon? I, I live in, um, I'm in Medford. In where? Medford, Oregon. Oh, nice. Wow, you're in a nice part of the country. I um, like it. Yeah. So that's kind of where we're at on our um, management schedule. You know, we're um, starting to downshift a little bit. I know that. You know, they they talk about beekeepers having the winter off. I don't know if that really happens for me. I'm, you know, I'm pretty much a full-time beekeeper. Not if so you're taking I'm, care of your equipment. Right. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. You're taking care of equipment, but I'm still accountable for probably, you know, a hundred, a hundred and a half colonies. So people want to know what's going on with their bees even in the winter. That reminds me. So, I still have swarm traps sitting in the trailer in the front yard I need to bring in before it rains tonight. Oh, yeah, we're going to get rain, right? We'll take that. Yeah. I think it's going to hit us tomorrow. So uh, as long as it's a nice light dusting that kind of saturates the ground a little bit, that'll be perfect. If it's, what we have to hope for is we can't have a severe rain that's going to cause a lot of runoff. But, yeah, so we're uh, fixing gear, reading books. And, you know, I met with some other big uh, beekeepers today from Marin and Sonoma. We do have a, um, a treatment-free group. We started to see issues with the, our local clubs in that, you know, there's that huge wedge that's being driven between 
beekeepers, the ones who treat and the ones who don't. And, you know, we're not bugging on them or trying to harsh, but at some point you say, um, we don't really have a whole lot in common with them as far as our management practices. So a number of us kind of split off and started a tri-county thing between Napa, Sonoma, and Marin. And, um, you know, I met with two of the other gals who are founding members of that club and, you know, just trying to catch up and see what's going on. One of the ladies had gone to Cape Ammonia and was talking about what was happening over there in Turkey. I think that's the kind of things you start doing now, spending more time with beekeepers and um, building woodenware, obviously. Yep. So I have um, all my woodenware is custom built. You know, I, I feel it's really important to have um, adequate ventilation and sufficient insulation. So um, I have everything custom built. And as I was telling you, we're really um, super sensitive about making note of everything. So my tops are kind of like a um, migratory top that are a little bit oversized, mm-hmm. but they have a huge vent in the back. So imagine you can slide this thing forward and backwards, mm-hmm. depending on how much venting you want. And um, it's it's got a space underneath a galvanized lid that you lift up and it's like a little school desk in there. So it has all your records. It has, you know, pencils, a pencil sharpener. It has a series of entrance reducers and, you know, um, bubble pack, that insulated bubble pack and sheetrock to keep it cool. Mostly I'm not really trying to keep it warm in the winter as much as I am trying to keep it cool because I found that if I didn't do that and, keeping my bees out in Napa's midday sun, I found that a big contingency in my workforce would be out collecting water rather than um, being able to be foraging for nectar and pollen. Right. Propolis. So I, I felt that I wanted to give as much relief to them as I possibly could. What other so customizations I'll, do you do? Um, the other thing that I find really important is I have my bottoms built. And we came up with a design that you could do lots of two by fours. So it was really easy to get, um, length of two by four. But more importantly than that is the trays are galvanized metal. So you could pull this tray out. And if you see that, you know, that, that might load, we could hit it with our torch. So for me, um, one of the most important things I have is my torch. I use that thing all day long and to the point where sometimes if I've left my torch out on site or something and I don't know where my torch is, I'd rather not work bees because I don't want to be jumping around from hive to hive with a dirty tool. I scorch everything between colonies. Um, and it's just nice. I don't use a smoker. I try not to hit my bees with smoke as much as I can, but I'm smoking myself all day long, right? And if you ever get stung, you jump right on your smoker. I find that if you yourself before you go into the hive that in combination to um, having follower boards I very rarely wear gear I don't wear anything right and you know sure I have these colonies that will let me know that they're not particularly fond of me being there at that particular time but you know I'm still not so old I can dodge them a little bit 
I keep them off me with the smoke, and you know, I go home smelling like a Slim Jim. But I um, Slim Jim, I find those, <laughs> yeah, you know, you, um, yeah. So that's kind of where I'm at with my equipment. I think it, I really like these galvanized trays. I do use um, country rubes, and you know, I some of the other ones from the big suppliers. I can't; they're really hard for me to use. I don't like them that much at all because, you know, they're. I rely on that tray, man. <laughs> I get a lot of information from it. You know, you, you can should, you once you really understand the monitoring tray, you really don't. You do need to go in your hive, and I'm not saying it's a, you know, it's not a replacement for hive inspection, but pretty much all the information you need at any given time is on that tray if you understand how to read it properly. Can you describe so, that, the, bo- the whole bottom setup to us? Um, you know, I have a screened, a screened bottom board with, what is that, eighth-inch mesh. You know, we've, um, we cut the mesh specially for our bottoms so they tuck into the front so we don't have any problems putting in reducers. Um, underneath that, I imagine there's probably a inch and a half, two inch space. And then there's a groove that you slide this metal tray in. And, um, that tray uh, has a, a series of bends in it. I work with a, I work with everyone here locally to build my equipment, but a guy in particular is my sheet metal guy, and he's come up with a series of um, angled bends that will allow you to push that tray in deep enough that water can't shed back into the hive. And um, yeah, I find that I'm always I'm, I wonder about how other people do it who don't use. Um, monitoring boards and how are they getting a pulse on what's going on with their bees because you can get so much information Not a, it, I think they were mostly designed for um, mite inspections and getting an idea of what your mite drops were but I think once you really start looking at them they tell you everything they'll tell you the size of the brood where the brood is within your hive are they hitting their stores all kinds of information. You know exactly when the first drones of the year are being laid. Um, we're taking little, you know, they'll always end up with little pieces of pollen. We take those pollen samples and do a little smear. We have a space on our record think, notes where we put a little smear on those and we're thinking at some point, you know, it's not very important to have those in the spring or even into the summer, but come, you know, the early fall, take those samples down and have Dr. Frankie read them at UC Berkeley and give us an idea of what the bees are foraging on at that time of year. And, you know, then say, game on, man. Start planning that stuff like crazy. So it's interesting. You know, um, I tell, you know, that I don't, we really don't open our hives that much in the, um, in the winter. I, I was on those top feeders for a long time. Mm-hmm. Although I don't really feed my bees, we really like those. They kind of acted like an attic for, you know, a place where that hot air or also in the winter, the condensation would go up in there and then end up dripping down on inside that top feeder rather than on top of the bees. But I've gone over, off of those over the last few years. I'm, I feel like I have a harder time with them venting and 
more so in the spring when the nectar flows on. You know, it's hard for the bees to push that moisture out of them. So maybe I should have gone off of them. Maybe I should leave my top feeders on. You leave them on all year? No, I'm just saying, well, just to go back to what we were talking about earlier, um, talking about feeding, I was, I had mentioned Uh that I was mixing up syrup in the five gallon bucket. Excuse me. Um, just so everybody knows, I don't feed stimulatively. I don't feed in the spring or early summer. The only reason I feed, the only reason I fed this year was because I came to the end of the summer and a lot of my, because we had a really late spring and summer, a lot of my splits and, um, swarms that I had caught had virtually zero stores. So what I was trying to do was build up a little bit of stores while they still would take liquid feed in September. And then, um, later after, uh, you know, maybe first of December or whatever, I'll start looking at some of those first year ones and maybe give them some granulated sugar. But the, the, the long-term hives, I don't feed them. I only, I only help first year hives, really. Uh, unless I need, unless I need everybody to survive for expansion means, which is kind of right now what I'm doing, but I'm kind of getting past, um, since I moved here to Oregon, I'm kind of getting past, um, that stage where I need every hive to survive so I can multiply from. I've got, I've got plenty. I've got 25 swarm traps. I caught like eight or nine swarms this year. Which is, you know, one and three is pretty good. Um, mm-hmm. did pretty well with that. So I've got plenty of supply of bees. Uh, my, my bees are getting adapted to this area. So they're starting to thrive. You know, this year I've got several hives that were really thriving. Whereas last year, most of the hives were just kind of surviving. So it's getting, I'm, it's, it's kind of interesting because I've in, in moving, I've kind of had the opportunity to develop new localized bees like three times now. So I kind of am more well versed in how that process works and how to do that. Um, and, and most people don't move, you know, don't move their bees. So what I'm kind of experimenting with is how to, what to do with bees when you first bring, when you buy bees essentially and bring them into your area because they're not acclimated to your climate. So anyway, it's, it's been an interesting, uh, been an interesting journey there. I think that's so important too, Solomon, that idea of locally adapted stock and bees being able to acclimate themselves to a certain, um, environmental conditions. We're starting to see that more and more, you know. If you're really attentive to your bees and you're watching them closely, um, you'll see that. And we're also starting to see a lot of um, colonies fail because they're bringing in genetic stock all willy-nilly. From, yes. You know, what does what does a um, you know a Kona queen know about living in Napa, California? Yes, or, or worse, somewhere further north and colder. Like when I, when I was a kid, the, the local commercial beekeeper here requeened his everything with Kona Queens every spring here. What, and at the time, you know, there was no mites in Hawaii. What does a Kona Queen know about 
Oregon. What does a Kona Queen know about our wet, cold winters? What does a Kona Queen know about mites at all? Like, we had nothing. No defense, right. no acclimation. And so, when if you didn't treat those bees, they would absolutely die because they literally had nothing to work with because they were, they right. were out of their element. The Well, what we're here is these colonies that... Um, because they don't recognize the envir- environmental clues, and of course they understand the change of seasons. I'm not implying that. I think bees from Kona, bees from Russia, bees from wherever they'll will know, right, when the sun starts moving along the horizon. But the little subtle bees that tell them how to start storing their provisions or telling that queen, like, hey, baby doll, you need to slow down. Yeah. Time to slow down in your lane, right? If she's going to pile them on and have these big, huge broods that they're, it, it, it won't work. We need our colonies to start slowing down. Everybody needs to start downshifting and uh, getting to a place that I say is, you know, about the size of a cantaloupe. That's my ideal colony going through a Napa winter. Mm. One that's too big and going to consume everything. And, you know, you uh, adjust there, you know, what you can take by that as far as what your return is in honey, although I'm not about the honey at all. I'm not implying that. I'm just saying that sometimes, um, well, a lot of times beekeepers are looking for a return. And you can't rob everything because if you rob everything, come spring is when you're going to lose them. They'll do all right through winter. And when the spring comes and she starts laying and they have way more mouths of you than they have foragers. Don't try to treat beekeeping well, like a business until you really know what you're doing first. Right. And um, it's just kind of our protocol here, looking at the bees that have acclimated. Again, I don't move anything out of Napa Valley. I don't bring anything into Napa Valley. All I've been doing is acquiring um, bees here locally through swarms. Although, I mean, uh, I'm blowing in my hand and, like, throwing dice. It's a gamble, man, especially bees of unknown origin. However, you know, that oak tree that you've been collecting bees off for the last four years, those tend to be a little bit better as far as reliability. I find that most of the time with swarms, I let them build up a little bit, and I'll take that queen away. I don't throw her out with the bathwater. I watch her. But I'll use that workforce to introduce a queen of proven stock. And then let that, you know, I just essentially need both bees. So, and then I watch those queens. But very few of those swarms of unknown origin end up in my breeder stock. Mm-hmm. Some do. Uh, you know, I do have a couple. I don't want to say none of them. You know, um, we do a lot of cutouts, man. We're really good at cutouts. And my crew and I, you know, I think some guys like football, some guys like basketball, some guys like cheerleaders, other guys do whatever they're doing. For us, the guys I hang out with, man, we love doing cutouts. So we'll schedule them on a Friday night. And, you know, that's how we're acquiring a lot of our um, local stock as well. The longer I do this, the longer I do this, the more I recommend that people get local bees. If you want to start beekeeping, Get local bees. If you want to, if you bought bees last year and they died over the winter, 
don't make the same mistake again. If they're gonna, if, if you bought bees this year and they're gonna die over this winter, don't make the same mistake again. Use that equipment that's now got great bee smell on it and right. use, put up swarm mm. traps. Get involved with somebody like you who does cutouts regularly who might be willing to, you know, give you a frame of brew to start a new hive with out of that. Your local right. bees are the best bees. There's no Russian bees or no, ankle biters or VSH or whatever else, it's going to be a magic bee for you because those bees all come from somewhere else unless you live like right next door to Marla Spivak. Um, get your local bees and get them for free and uh-huh. let them figure it out. Let them do the treatment-free thing. They will weed themselves out and they will present themselves to you when they've been proven. And there's no reason to... to break the bank and try and try and throw money at it because it's it's you keep doing the same thing you're going to keep getting the same result right the um one thing that i differ a little bit on that salmon is i don't share stuff between bees sure i hold on to those pristine honey frames that i come across that are nice pure white wax because i'll use those to catch swarms in the um spring but I, I don't share anything between bees. If I have a dead out and I clean it up, I um, scrape every little drop of propolis off it. I'm fastidious that way. My people like say, you're nuts, Rob. But I scrape every bit of propolis, and then I run everything through one of those steam wax melters that I got from Brushy. And, you know, at this point, I, I don't have an outlet for the wax. So literally, I have three pillars of wax with diameter of a five gallon bucket that are taller than I am. I just keep stacking up wax, but I would much rather have the wax than a bunch of nasty brown comb laying around. It's probably loaded with pathogens. I'm pretty adamant about that. I don't share anything between bees. I would never feed any bees, other bees honey, unless it was an emergency, right? If I was in a situation where I was out in the middle of nowhere and had to figure out something, of course, um, you know, the colony's gonna die if I don't feed them or give them a frame of brood from another colony. Of course I would. But overall, my practice is I don't share anything between bees. I keep bees off of every, you know. I understand I that. A, um, yeah. I, I, I don't have that. I've never, in the last, maybe in the very beginning, I think, um, the thing that sealed the deal for me was I was doing a huge cutout, like a huge cutout, and by you know, we were moving around this building that had a number of colonies in it out at the state hospital. And by week two, I had just been done with processing honey. So I had about, you know, a quarter of honey in the bottom of a bucket, like filled up, filled it up with water and then went out and fed it to a bunch of my bees in one particular bee yard. And systematically, the first one being EFB, 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 every colony in that um, bee yard came down with EFD. So that was kind of the deal dealer for me. I start, I stopped sharing everything. Said, okay, it's really easy to pass pathogens between bees. And I think that that's something that we should look at closely. I can, I can certainly understand that point of view. However, my, my practice has never been to protect anybody from anything. I mean, if you follow my work, I'm, I'm totally let everybody share it around and whoever can't survive it 
doesn't survive it. You know, it's. Mm-hmm. I did that one. I had one colony in my front yard. I swear to God, I fed them everything, man. I fed them everybody's swag, anything that I took out of the hive, I threw at those bees. You know, anytime I would process honey, I'd throw all the caps at them. Anything I had, I would throw at those bees. <laughs> then, boop, <laughs> one died. One, the winter, man, they died. I'm like, shoot, I shouldn't have done that. I feel bad now. <laughs> well, so, I haven't <laughs> experienced that. I very rarely get, I've never had any sort of foul brood disease. Um, I, <laughs> occasionally we'll get a hive that gets chalk brood. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were also asking like, how do people, how do people deal with not having a tray to look at the bottom? And my answer to that is just like, I don't care. Like if, if the bees have the problem, mm-hmm. then they're going to fix the problem or they're going to not make it. And I, I lose, I have in the past lost a lot of hives. I have, I have ended a lot of hives that didn't seem to be making it. And, um, I've come out of it with stock that is so strong that they almost never get sick. Um, and a lot of people, especially on the other side of the aisle, look at that and think that it's kind of heartless and cruel. Um, but that's really how, that's really how bees survive in the wild. I mean, a hive dies, they get robbed out by another hive. They pass pathogens around. They, they mm-hmm. drift around. They'll back and forth. Honey gets stolen by one hive, goes to another hive, dies, goes to another hive. It's just uh, nature is 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 kind of brutal from our perspective. And so I just you know I just let them do it, and I. I guess I say, I guess I, I spend a lot less time worrying about what's going to happen and just keep bees. You know? Right. I can, um, I can see that in some ways. The only thing that, and I'm with you, man. I don't sit around and cry over dead outs. Believe me. Um, I don't sit and cheer either. It's sad to me, but man, um, I believe that the same thing you're talking about is one of your podcasts. Like you don't want those bees in your gene pool. Right. Right. Um, uh, but I also feel like some of these, um, some of these pathogens are pretty serious. I think we're going to see a lot of research done. And I think it's even more of what I just said. Listen, the, um, the varroa mite is not the vector for all these viruses the way we think they are. You know, the, mm. um, the varroa is essentially just knocking down the immune system of these bees. And they're immune compromised, so they're predisposed to have these viruses. But if they're fed well and are healthy and everything goes smoothly, they, you know, it's not a problem for them. It's only because you have this family of varroa mites that are feeding on that young larva. I think, you know, I don't know who was talking about this is a, we've had many, many tests and pathogens come through beekeeping, but this is the first one, this parasite that actually cultures the skin and feeds off the bees, right? Mm-hmm. So I feel like on, in some ways, maybe a colony would be all right given normal circumstances, but you throw a coma brood at them that's just riddled with pathogens, it's not fair, man. You're going to knock them to their knees. They're not prepared for that, you know? So I, I just do my best to stay as clean and as tight 
as I can possibly be. Um, I, I also, I'm a, I, I'm a firm believer in this idea that, hey, Solomon, I don't know how to tell you, but they're not your people. You may have paid for them, you may have them housed, all of it, but they're not yours, man. They're not mine. They're not his. They're not hers. They're not that other guy listening to this podcast. They're our bees, right? They're feral. Everybody, they're all our bees. And we all have to get to that page. So you have these guys that are treating and it's super frustrating to me because I look at it and say, Hey, what impact am I having on you? Right? Little or none. I'm doing you a solid, man. I'm spitting out good, strong genetics, right? What impact are you having on me? And of course, you know, it's, it's a big bone of contention because people are like saying, my bees, and they're not their bees. I mean, open mating is the king mm-hmm. right? It'd be very different if they were like other forms of livestock that, you know, it's not a problem if you want to, your husbandry, and you want to do chickens and whatever husbandry you want to do is fine, man. If you want to be a gross-ass chicken farmer, that's all good. But, um, you know, as long as I don't come over in your chicken yard and walk around and come home and walk in mine, I, there shouldn't be a problem. But with bees, it's a whole different thing because of your drones are hooking up with my queens. And, you know, what it, what it means now, especially in Napa Valley, because everybody's getting bees and it's, like everywhere else, is that, you know, I got to look at this real estate and say, like, okay, this means I need a boardwalk, a park place, and a couple of railroads all in a row, right? So that I could rear queens at one end and flood drones at the other, and hopefully my drones are mating with my queens. And it shouldn't be like that. That's also, you talk about treatment, that is, in a way, a form of mechanical treatment. Mm-hmm. But I don't know any other way around it other than, you know, I don't know. I'm in the master beekeeping program at Davis right now. And Elena and Bernardo are telling me, hey, Rob, man, you want to get ahead on this game? You're going to be artificially inseminating. And to me, that seems like a much further jump in the way of natural selection than me, you know, at least trying to control what drones are mating with my queens because I don't want my queens mating with swag from the other side of the tracks. Right? That makes sense? Mm-hmm. Or can you get behind that? No, I understand. I mean, my, I, I open mate everything. I am in the presence of a nearby commercial beekeeper. Um, I'm, I, you know, I'm doing him a favor. I'm taking losses for him. Uh, I'm mm-hmm. providing him with strong drones. And I, I hope, I think, and I hope that my smaller, faster, healthier drones are out competing his big fat medicated drones and mating mm-hmm. with his queens. And I'm hoping that my drones are also mating with my queens preferentially so that, mm-hmm. so that my queens aren't, aren't, aren't mating with his, um, weak drones that, that are, that are from stock that's not varroa resistant. Right. That are all chopped up artificially through chemical means. Exactly. What, what do we, what do we do? Right? We just that's the world we live in. That's what we've gotta, that's, yeah, that's what we've gotta deal with. That's, that's just the world we live in. It's unfortunate that we have to, 
it's an, I mean, it's not, you're right. It's totally different than say cows or something. If I want to do treatment free cows, I can do treatment free cows in my pasture. But with bees, they're not my bees. They're, I just happen to be in possession of the box that they live in today. That may not be the case next week. Um, I've just got, you know, oh, lost him. Uh, I've just got, I've got, bees are wild animals. They really are. Let's get him back on the phone here. Oh, there he is. Are you there? Yeah, ma'am. Why'd you hang up on me? I don't know what happened. We got lost. <laughs> no I'm problem. I'm kidding, man. I treat. I swear, I treat. I'm just like all those other guys. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, all don't I was, hang up on me, man. all I was saying when, when I lost you there was, um, that you're right that bees are wild they you know we can't the the old the old Eddie Izzard um stand up routine he's talking about he wants to be a beekeeper he wants to keep bees he wants to put them on strings so they get honey and they come back here you know that's not the way it works you can't keep them in a pen i've i've said for years they're not like rabbits they shouldn't have to be fed they're not kept in a cage they come and go as they please they mate out in the wild as they please. So the thing we can do is get out of their way, stop propping them up so that they can interact with nature in the way that they're supposed to. Right. Well, I agree with you a hundred percent, man. I hate that puppy and kitten theory. Well, you'd give your dog a shot if they were sick. You're like, yeah, my, my dog's not running around the neighborhood. You know, maybe it'd be a little different if, I had a dog that was running around the neighborhood looking for all those other dogs in heat, or I had a, you know, a cat that wasn't castrated or neutered running around. It might have a different spin on it, but, um, yeah, there's not, it's not a puppy and kitten situation. And I often hear that, you know, when you, especially the saddest thing is when these big players get up in front of, you know, at these bee meetings and symposiums and things, and that's, their, you know, that's their standing point. <laughs> You're like, it doesn't hold up, Solomon. You get it. I get it. I think, you know, I think a lot of people kind of get behind it because they they feel like, yeah, that's right. If I did have a dog, I wouldn't stake it out in the backyard and open a can of Old Roy and feed it like that, you know. But they're not. They're not puppies and they're not kittens. I think we need to kind of acknowledge that. I think the um one of the bigger problems is getting everyone on the same page. Right? That's the hard and, part. How do you convince the majority of beekeeping community that treating is not only not necessary but also detrimental to the species? You got it, man. That's the thing. You got a couple of problems in the way, right? You have these migratory guys and it's a lot bigger than us saying, Okay, we're gonna you know, close down the borders and, um, you know, not let any bees into the state of California. Two thirds of the nation's bees are here every year because, uh, it's a, a way bigger problem, right? If mm -hmm. You rip the rug out from under agriculture. It's all going to fold in on itself. I just don't know how to do it responsibly. I think I was listening to one of your podcasts. You know, a number of guys that are treatment free that are migratory, but overall, majority of them are not and 
think that's a big problem. I think it's going to start at the grassroots level. People like us saying like, hey, wait a minute, can we please just uh, pump the brakes here for a minute and see what's going on with, um, you know, let's all get on a solid platform of, you know, e-health and then see where we can build from there. But I'm a little bit concerned, man. I'm a little bit more concerned for you, Solomon, than me because my kid's 13, so I got a few years on you. I'm worried for our kids. Uh, no, know, I think you and I will get through it, man. I don't know if they will. I get it. We're we're coming, and I, and I don't mean to to beat the uh, environmentalist drum here, but just some information that I've learned this past week. Um, you can't really call yourself an environmentalist if you eat meat, especially beef, um, mm-hmm. because the way the world works. Uh, there's just not enough room for, to make food for all the humans anymore the way that we make right. food now. If, if mm-hmm. you took, um, the, the average food consumption for an American to, to have the acreage to feed everybody, you need the entire surface of the United States, you need all of Central America, and you need half of Canada. And as everybody mm-hmm. knows, most of that land is not farmland. So really we are hogging a huge amount of the world's resources and it's something that's not sustainable. And you know, the, the almonds with the bees is just a symptom of that. You can't, it's one of my favorite sayings that I've been saying recently is the, um, the conditions are perfectly designed to produce the results. You know, what we have now with the, um, with the almonds, with, with, with the migratory bees in the almonds is because California is so focused on almonds. So many of the 70, 80, whatever it is, 90% of the almonds in the world are produced in California. And not only do they produce almonds, but almond milk was developed as a new market to make more almonds. And if you drive down any north south road through California any, any length of time, I-5, Highway 90, whatever it is, I don't even remember. There's only more almond groves going up. There's only more. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been, I've lived here, um, I'm 34 now. I lived here for the first 21 years of my life and the second, last two years of my life and driven back and forth through California a number of times in between. Um, it's only getting more and more almonds and that only means more and more bees are necessary to pollinate those almonds. Now there are some, uh, pollination free almonds being developed, but that's going to be years down the road before that really takes effect. You know, plant based, tree based agriculture especially has a really slow turnaround time and the uh, pollination free almonds that they have right now don't taste very good. So it's going to take some time before they turn that around. Um, so the, the only way there's, there's really no way to stop it because as more bees are needed, the price is going to go up and more people are going to get into it. The existing companies are going to expand to fill the demand because the, the, I mean, the commercial beekeepers, most of them can't survive without pollination. It just pays so well, you know, they get half of their operating budget for the entire year from one two week stretch of pollination in California. It's right. 
it's hard to like where you I, I I don't know where we're gonna go from it because there's there's little we can do about it. I don't even know what to do. We talked about that, ma'am. Where's the light at the end of that tunnel? There's no light at the end of that tunnel, ma'am. And it's it's really bad because most of those almonds aren't even staying here. I'm sure they make almond milk, but I wonder what the percentage of the almonds that go to almond milk, man. They're shipping them all over to China because they need a cheap protein source because they've overfished. Mm, so it's way bigger. It's all starting to, you know, we got to come up with some serious answers. And, you know, we need that Jane Goodall for bees to get out there, man. Where is she? Or Che Guevara, <laughs> one of the two. Who's going to throw that first ball talk cocktail, man? There have to be you, Solomon, because if I do it, they already know I'm the outspoken one. <laughs> They'll know it was me. Well, I'm the so, one with the yeah. podcast and the big Facebook group, so I don't know. <laughs> no, I don't know, man. It's a little bit scary. It's like guerrilla radio we right here. Just, right, we just have to. Um, we just have to keep a PMA, positive mental attitude, not let it beat us down too hard, and just continue moving in the direction that we're in, and you know, don't get pulled into the dark side. Accept your losses, and um. Do like you're doing, Solomon. You're doing a huge service, man, getting this out to so many people. And those of you that listen to the podcast, you know that I'm a student of the human condition, the student of um, brain science. And there's a there's a there's a pretty basic fact about human decision making that you can see all around you if you look, and that's the fact that we really don't change unless we have no other choice. Right. The, the reason why governments, um, religion, historical um, institutions, they don't make major changes unless there's major problems to turn around. You know, with, with politics right now, people are wondering, like, what's going on? Both sides are really unhappy about the direction we're going. But if you slow down and you get people to talk to each other, no matter what side of the political aisle you're on, we all really want the same things. We just can't meet anywhere on how to get them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I just also think that it's a um, consumer-driven society, and the almighty dollar is the bottom line. Mm-hmm. So until some of those other things change, which, you know, I don't even know how that'll change. I live in a very, very expensive place. It's crazy expensive for me to live here. It is. Owning property here is expensive. I don't know how that would change. You know, if I wasn't, you know, if you're not making a certain amount, I think that there's probably some people up at the top who can afford to share a little bit more. But I don't know. I, I find that it's all driven by money. It's kind of interesting because the new generation, people younger than me are seeing this and not even, 
not even doing it on purpose, but economists and people are starting to notice that the millennials are not embracing the traditional models of how to do things. They're, they're not buying houses. They're not settling down and having kids. They're moving mm-hmm. toward an experiential based lifestyle rather than an ownership based lifestyle. So I think there mm-hmm. are things happening that are going to change. And as we become, as we become the old people, um, embrace the direction the next generation is going rather than sitting back and pointing fingers at the young kids about how they don't do it the way that we used to do it. The reason they don't do it the way we used to do it is because it's not the time that we were in when we did it. Um, complaining uh, about, complaining yeah. about the youth is, is facile. It's, it's simplistic. It's your parents complained about you. Why don't you change the narrative? And instead of complaining about the young generation, embrace them. And I'm talking about you personally. I'm talking to the audience. I was going to say, wait a minute, man. Two and a half thousand of you. you. I think, yeah, we have to figure that out and kind of give these, this new, um, the new steward the tools they need and help them out because they're, they're definitely going to need help and they're going to need hope. So that's what I mean by don't lose hope. Keep that positive mental attitude and, um, you know, keep moving forward on the things that we're talking about today and your podcast cover and your Facebook page cover. Um, I think that that's our best case. Um, you know, we're going to have leaders rise to the top and hopefully they'll come up with solutions to some of these problems. I don't see myself, I don't really see myself as one of those leaders. Um, I'd like to be, but I just don't necessarily see myself as that person. But what I can be as I get older is be, is be an elder, an elder in the community that the, the next community that those leaders come from. And that's what I, that's where I hope to find my place in the next, in the coming yeah. decades. Well, I don't, I don't know. Um, I got a number of years on you, man. So I don't know <laughs> what my role, I don't know what my role is exactly. Um, I want to keep, uh, you know, I want to keep moving forward on the path that I'm headed in. I want to, um, you know, when I'm not managing other people's tithes, I work at a Montessori school. Mm-hmm. Three days a week, I spend uh, teaching adolescent kids the vocation of beekeeping. Great. And um, so I, I really, I, I cherish that. It's sacred to me to be able to work with these kids. And, you know, I've been at it now 11 years at this particular school. And it's so wonderful when these kids come back, you know. That's three or four of them working for me now. That's hugely important because what I'm seeing in, you know, when I travel around and do talks and seminars and things, the, the beekeeping community now is, is only old and it's only getting older. Um, people my age and younger are almost absent from those meetings, but there's a new crop of kids that are teenagers right now they're not even adults yet who are going to be the next generation of beekeepers and those are the important people in this in this conversation absolutely 
and um, yeah, I, I feel really proud of that, that I can offer that to my community, my area, is this helping to form the next generation of beekeepers that'll be coming through the valley. And you're right, I, I think there's a lot of things that the, um, the younger kids really enjoy about it. You know, they're, uh, they're fully engaged and they totally understand this method of keeping bees. And they get behind it 100%. A lot of my best genetics are up there at the school. So we're working with, um, strengthening the genetics right there on the school ground and applying it to their other curriculum. So I feel like we're, with that part of it, we're at a good place. Just how do you get our the leaders, the ones who are driving all this, to you know figure out that it's not sustainable? I don't think they can because it's so financially driven. Well, right now I don't have the answer to that. So, uh, Rob, I, man. is there anywhere that thing. we can find you on the internet, the website, Facebook group, anything yeah. like that? NapaValleyBeco.com NapaValleyBeco.com Yep. Alright, do you have any books or anything? I'm reading good books. I just got one called uh, Mr. Bee Pollen Myself. Okay. Pretty interesting book about pollen. I don't have any books myself. I, you know, um, I'm waiting so I get a little bit older and Kind of waiting for the guy who showed me everything out here, Serge Labeth. I want him to write his book, man. Uh-huh. It would be a little bit, you know, jump in the gun if I was to try and do a book or something. I would let him do his, and he's the one who made uh, me the beekeeper I am, most certainly, and a number of other beekeepers around here. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I'm not too on to doing uh, a book right now. I don't know what my next thing is. Do you have a yeah. YouTube page or anything? YouTube channel? No, I should, huh? No. Couldn't hurt. I'm dragging on all, I'm not, I'm dragging on all that stuff. I hear the I young should. kids love YouTube. Yeah, I, that's maybe what I should do, huh? Maybe that's a project to do with the Montessori kids. Maybe yeah. so. Get a YouTube going. But no, mostly I'm just, um, I do have a presence on, um, the, a website and I do Instagram. So, um, Napa Valley Bico. Napa Valley Bico on Instagram. Oh, and yeah, uh, could you send me those pictures? Uh-huh. If you want to send me those pictures, I'll include them in the show notes so people can can see what you're talking about with, uh, well, with okay. anything. Send me all the pictures you want, and I'll put them up in the show notes. You're awesome. You're doing a great job, man. And if you ever roll down here, or I'll look you up if I roll up that way, Definitely stop in and see me. Let's spend a day. Oh, absolutely. If I'd, if I'd known you when I went down to see that baseball game, I would have stopped by because I drove right through Napa on my way back. So. Oh, man. Okay. You got a friend in Napa, man. Awesome. Well, Rob, thank Good. you so much for being on the podcast with me. No problem. I appreciate it. Thank you. Hope to have you back on again soon. Yeah, just let me know. I shall. Thanks.
Thanks again for listening. If you'd like to see me or hear me speak in person, booking events or event bookings, got that backwards, are starting now for 2018. On January 13th, I'm going to be at the Berks County Agricultural Center in Leesport, Pennsylvania. And Keith Malloy's Symposium in Alaska is going to be the weekend. I'm going to say before that. So, yeah. Hang out for more details on that one. If you know Keith Malloy, if you're familiar with him up there in the Anchorage area, That will be happening, and I will be there. No five-star reviews this time. If you leave me a five-star review on iTunes, I will read it on the show. The show is hosted, produced, and edited by me. My executive producer is Adam Blitz, and the show is brought to you by him and the other patrons at patreon.com slash gfb. If you want to support the show, you can become a patron, too, and get access to the TFB Pub on Facebook, which is a closed group for supporters of this podcast and the rest of the TFB stuff. Theme music at the beginning and the end is by Jeb Bodiford, and you can find him on Twitter. He does stuff like that. What you're hearing now is called Back in Summer by Nikolai Hagles, and you can find him on SoundCloud. He has a lot of free podcast music and other things that you can use like this. Facebook group is at facebook.com slash groups slash treatment free beekeepers. The Facebook group admins include Tony Holmes, Scott Offord, and Michael Cox. Moderators are Jason Bruns, Adam Blitz, and English, Chris Andrews, Mike Mayhar, and Christina Chilcott, who is a guy, in case you didn't know. Uh, the treatment free be- uh, commercial beekeepers group is at the same slash TF commercial. And you can find my treatment-free beekeeping videos at youtube.com slash treatment-free beekeeping. The forum is at forum.tfbs.net, and admins there are Dusty Monkey and Michael Bush. My website is parkerbees.com, and sometimes I blog at parkerbees.blogspot.com. Thanks again for joining me. I'm Solomon. Please share and rate this podcast whenever you get a chance. It helps other people find the show. And have fun keeping bees, because if you're not having fun, maybe take up camping. <laughs>